Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sunday. On today's show, it's more bad news for the Doomsday Glacier, there's a strong argument for taking your shoes off indoors, and could cocaine bear really happen? But first, it was on this day in 1953 that Francis Crick and James Watson published their proposal for the now famous double helix structure of the DNA molecule. this could turn into a habit. Millions of people enjoyed an extra long weekend for the Jubilee and of course a shorter working week the one before that. But how about a four-day week all year round? From today, workers at 70 firms across the UK are trialling it with no cut to their pay. In early summer 2022, a new pilot programme trialling a four-day working week was just getting underway. The scheme, organised by Four Day Week Global, took place between June and December and involved 61 organisations across the UK, including non-profits as well as private firms in recruitment, software and manufacturing. This week, the results of the Four Day Week campaign were released and according to their report, the trial was a resounding success. This is Joe Ryle, director of the Four Day Week campaign. You know, these results were a major breakthrough moment for four day work week. We've seen well-being massively increased for the workers involved. But on the other side, we've seen business productivity and performance maintained. And for that reason, almost every company that took part has decided to stick with the four-day week at the end of the trial. Some of the most extensive benefits of shorter working hours were found in employees' well-being. Before and after data shows that 39% of employees were less stressed and 71% had reduced levels of burnout at the end of the trial. Likewise, levels of anxiety, fatigue and sleep issues decreased, while mental and physical health both improved. Mark Downs is the chief exec of the Royal Society of Biology. Speaking with Sky News, he explained just how much staff well-being improved over the course of the trial. We see there's actually been a decline in the amount of sick days taken during the period of the trial. We were starting off sick leave around about the you know, five, um, four to five days perhaps per person per year. And on average, it's down to less than two at the moment. So I think it's a really substantial difference actually. Well, it's about working smarter rather than working harder. So it's looking at your kind of business output. You know, what is your, what do you want to achieve at the end of your working week? What is your effective output? And being really strategic about that. You know, the businesses really spent a couple of months really planning for that. And actually quite quickly, once you, once you move to that way of working, you start to see bits of work that, you know, we all have bits of our work that we do that maybe isn't particularly contributing towards the, the wider goal of your organization. And quite quickly, you know, companies seem to work more effectively, more efficiently. And also that's backed up by the fact that work Workers are better rested. They've had that time to their, themselves. You know, they've got a better work-life balance. So they're then, then they're performing more efficiently and effectively in their job. Key business metrics also showed signs of positive effects from shorter working hours. When compared to a similar period from previous years, organisations reported revenue increases of 35% on average, which indicates healthy growth during this period of working time reduction. 
Not only was revenue up, retention was too, as companies saw a 57% decrease in the number of people leaving. Whilst the four-day weeks work for the vast majority of the companies involved, it's not one shape fits all, but it is a realistic possibility for many. There's lots of different ways of doing it. I think the four-day week needs to be as flexible as possible to allow businesses to decide how it would work for them. But, you know, it's not going to be... This isn't going to be a change that happens overnight for everyone. There's going to have to be a transition to get there. But absolutely, you know, we think that the vast majority of the economy could move to a four-day working week by the end of this decade. I always tell people that I live one-handed in a two-handed world and you don't realize how many things you need two hands for until you only have one good one. Heather Rendulic's stroke left her barely able to move her left hand and arm. I honestly had no hope of, you know, any improvement. That was until she met Marco Capagrosso and his team of researchers at the University of Pittsburgh. Only in the United States, there is 800,000 people every year that get a stroke. And about half of them, 400,000 every year, end up with having permanent motor paralysis. So it's actually an enormous medical problem. Heather was our first participant, so it was very emotional to do the study with her. When a stroke happens, a blood vessel that carries oxygen and nutrients to the brain is either blocked by a clot or bursts. What happens in reality is that that damage uh, destroys the connections between our brain and our spinal cord, which is where the circuits that control movement are located. So what we thought was, what, what if there is a technology that could allow us to amplify those signals that trickle down the lesion that, that are surviving um, and, uh, uh, and restore the capability of these people to move again. And in 2021, that's what they did. University of Pittsburgh researchers implanted a device that electrically stimulated Heather's spinal cord, helping brain signals reach the nerve cells that move her arm and hand. The first day in the lab, I had no idea what to expect. I was so nervous. They had me open and close my hands and I was doing it in a way that I hadn't done since my stroke. And we all were in tears crying. And it was just a really powerful moment and just, you know, one of the highlights of my life. Immediately after the implant, Heather was able to do things she couldn't do before. I could feel it in my arm, like a vibration, so to speak. It never hurts, um, but the, you definitely do feel a vibration and you can tell when it's on and when it's not on. And in tests carried out by researchers, you can see the difference too. One of the tests involved Heather moving coloured blocks from a pile on the left onto an empty tray on the right. And the side-by-side -side difference is staggering. In the video showing Heather sorting blocks with the stimulation off, she manages to move six blocks onto the empty tray. When the stimulation's turned on, she's able to work twice as quickly, moving a total of 13. Capagrosso says researchers decided most of the tasks, but Heather also weighed in as she shared with Associated Press. My husband and I love to eat steak and one of my pet peeves is I have to ask him to cut up my steak for me into pieces. So at the last day of the study, we have them deliver a steak for her to cut the steak with their hand. Hi, you're cutting it. I'm cutting it. <laughs> I did not think it would be possible, but it was. Despite the impressive results of the treatment, researchers had to remove the device after four weeks. I remember leaving the lab the last time in tears and just so sad, not wanting 
It's going to take years to prove the treatment works and can be rolled out to stroke survivors with arm and hand paralysis. We first give them abilities and then we remove them, which pressures me to go faster, actually, to be able to have the full implantable system and go back to them, hey, we can make your life better now. Everything we did just blew me out out of the water. This technology was helping me improve in ways that I didn't think were possible post-stroke. Still to come on the Sunday 7, some worrying news from the Thwaites Glacier and why you might want to leave your shoes at the door. Every crack and every crash are sounds of a looming catastrophe. Two new studies published in the journal Nature paint a doomsday scenario, the rapid melting of the Thwaites Glacier. When we look at places like Thwaites, we think of them as kind of the canary in the coal mine. Dr. Brittany Schmidt was one of the lead scientists on the international project. Thwaites is in this very precarious position where it's also holding back a great amount of ice behind it. The collapse of Thwaites would almost certainly cause measurable sea level rise, about half a metre. But because Thwaites is buttressing ice, if that were to hit water. Right behind it is another three meters of sea level rise. And Dr. Schmidt says these changes aren't happening overnight. We've been observing Antarctica pretty steadily for the last 30 or 40 years, what we call the satellite era. And during that time, Thwaites has gone from a really huge, massive integrated ice shelf to just completely collapsing where you can just see rifts and crevasses and icebergs being calved on a regular basis. But what is new, however, is the technology used in gathering this data. For the first time, special probes were sent into and under the glacier, allowing scientists to directly measure the ice mass lost in the deep ocean. Icefin is basically an underwater robotic oceanographer. What it allows us to do is to take the instruments and put them down through a hole in the ice and then explore underneath the ice. And the groundbreaking data they collected confirmed the worst. Warm water is seeping into the glacier's weak spots and Thwaites is melting faster and faster. But still, Dr. Schmidt remains optimistic that humans can stay in front of this disaster. When we see what humans did with CFCs, that was an easier fix, right? You just stop using hairspray, right? The 80s ends, but but we, we knew we could make a change. When you see things like that, you know humans are capable of this. from a shoes-off household. If not, after hearing about this study, you might want to reconsider. Researchers at New York's Marymount College have published a study that, in its essence, attempts to establish how much dog poop footwear carries into the homes of New Yorkers on the affluent Upper East Side. The study concludes there's a strong argument for leaving your outside shoes at the door or risk treading faecal bacteria around the house. A student and professor team made this discovery by counting the number of enterococci bacteria in samples taken from pavements, carpets and uncarpeted floors around the small undergraduate campus. These intestinal microbes are considered faecal indicator bacteria. In other words, if you detect them, someone or something's probably pooed there or carried poo there. In addition to the pavement contamination, the pair of researchers also found high concentrations of the faecal bacteria on student volunteers' shoe soles and on carpets in highly trafficked 
areas. The conclusion, study co-author Alessandra Larry put it simply, as she shared with the New York publication Gothamist, taking your shoes off inside's a no-brainer. Shoe soles are disgusting. Still to come on the Sunday 7, an AI breakthrough for cancer detection and the realities of cocaine bear. Right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. some dogs howl more than others, and does it have something to do with their genetics? This is Bizu, a Siberian husky. He's part of a study examining those questions at Budapest's Utvers Lorand University. 68 purebred family dogs were played three-minute recordings of wolf howls whilst their interactions were observed. They ranged from Shebas and Huskies to Bull Terriers and Boxers, with 28 different breeds in total. Bizu's owner and animal behaviourist Fanny Likowski is leading the study. The main finding was that uh, the breed matters. More precisely, that uh, those breeds which are genetically closer to wolves are more prone to respond with howling and they also show more stress signals than those which are less related to wolves. And age proved to be a factor as well. This genetic effect, what we found that more uh, related breeds are howling more often than the modern breeds, uh, it is true only to dogs which are older than five years. Among younger dogs, there was no difference between the breeds. So how did the more modern dogs express themselves? Researchers found they were more prone to barking over howling, but why? Research fellow Tamas Farago explains. During domestication, the importance of this uh, group cohesion call and, and territorial call dropped because of uh, the dogs were kind of pushed in the, the human society group and they don't need to maintain a pack like in, in case of wolves. Artificial intelligence is making its mark on many industries, including in medicine. And the latest example of this is an AI model developed by Canadian scientists for treating breast cancer. Which is really tailored at capturing details and properties of cancer in a way that previous MRI systems cannot capture. That was AI professor Alex Wong. The model then works to determine if chemotherapy would be helpful prior to surgery. One example after another, the AI learns and builds its knowledge. It's able to really understand and then be able to predict whether a particular patient, based on this MRI data, 
is likely to benefit from a certain type of chemotherapy. The tool was able to identify and predict which patients would benefit from chemotherapy with over 87% accuracy when it reviewed a group of more than 250 patients in the United States. This could be a big help for doctors who've traditionally read those scans. AI is always there as a complementary tool or assistant to a doctor to help them make better decisions so they're able to treat more patients as well as give them a better quality level of care. And patients navigating treatment options. Amy Tai, a University of Waterloo student, explains. So patients, especially cancer patients, have very limited time and they want to make sure that they have the best possible treatment because there's that opportunity cost if you choose one type of treatment that you lose the time and the resources to do another type of treatment. Ty hopes this is only the beginning. So the next steps would be like expanding both in terms of breadth and depth, so going to other cancer domains potentially, and then going focusing more on the breast cancer in terms of how we can leverage it for other types of treatments, um, other types of predictive cases. See what kind of effect that has on the bear. It fucking did cocaine. A bear did cocaine. After ingesting a duffel bag full of cocaine, a 35 stone bear goes on a killing rampage in a small town of Georgia where a group of locals and tourists join forces to survive the attack. Inspired by a true story, the action-packed cocaine bear is set to hit the big screens on the 24th of February, but we wanted to know, would a wild bear that ate a bunch of drugs actually go on a killing spree? Heidi Quine is the director of the Bear and Vet Departments at Animals Asia and she shared her expertise with Now This Earth. Okay, so bears and cocaine. Look, what we do know is that bears have mammalian nervous systems very similar to our own. So if they were to consume wild magic mushrooms or in the unlikely event they found cocaine, we would have to expect that the effects on their body would be similar to the effects that we see in humans. But the thing is, bears aren't searching for illicit or wild drugs. They're more likely searching for a cache of summer berries or a hive of honey. The true story of cocaine bears is much sadder than the sensationalised version. Back in the 80s, a black bear in Georgia came across a bundle of cocaine allegedly dumped by a drug smuggler. The huge bear ate just three to four grams of the stuff and subsequently died as a result. Quine says that movies like Cocaine Bear, which are puffed up versions of true stories, have the potential to be really harmful to animals. When the movie Jaws came out, global populations of sharks plummeted because people hunted for trophies or they were frightened of the fish. I don't want to see the same thing happen to bears. There's no need to be worried about bears in the wild. When we're in bear country, we should make sure that we don't surprise bears. And it's very easy to do that by walking in groups, making noise when you're trekking. And if you do encounter a bear, very unlikely that they want to attack you. They're more likely either curious or frightened. That old adage holds true. They're more frightened of us than we are of them. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.